So today we get to look at uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Job, and then we will considerably pick up the pace next time. Um, We're still trying to lay a solid foundation here at the beginning of the book, Um, but let's pray before we begin. Lord, we thank you for um, another Lord's Day, and uh, as always, we rejoice and we're glad in it. Uh, Thank you for bringing our Ukraine mission team uh, home safely. I know that some were or are sick. Um, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to them, uh, bring recovery, uh, support their families. Um, Thank you for the work, uh, no doubt, that was accomplished uh, for you um, through the means of those men and women. I pray that um, today that we would worship you in light of that. We worship you for what we hear from your word, uh, preach in the next hour. Um, and also here. Um, so teach us, we pray, by your spirit, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right. So, very briefly, what did we see last week in Job chapter 1? Well, we saw um, that a disaster came upon Job. And we're familiar with this. And a few things I'll say about it just to remind us. Um, the tragedy that came upon Job was seemingly complete. It seemed to touch just about every area of his life. Um, He lost his wealth, his prosperity, his status in the community, and of course he lost all of his ten children, a profoundly difficult affliction. We also saw that this was sudden. It came with no advance warning and, and we'll see this again today, for no apparent reason. We noted last week uh, that one of the interpretive keys, I think, to understanding the book of Job is found in the very first verse of the book that Job was blameless, he was upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. And so we noted last week that Job's suffering, all these things that are happening to Job, are not the result of his personal sin. Last week we also considered what or who brought about this tragedy in Job's life. We realize that God uses means. So we have the Chaldeans, the Sabaeans, we have the Satan. But we also had to recognize the fact that it was God ultimately who was sovereign over and bringing about this tragedy into Job's life. Job was ultimately respon- I'm sorry, God was ultimately responsible for what happened to Job. And then finally last week we considered Job's response to his suffering that he experienced in chapter 1. And let's look at this here as we begin at the end of chapter 1, as this will set us up for chapter 2. This is a good response from Job, an excellent response. Um, I'll read just verse 21 of chapter 1. And Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So really, considering what had happened to Job, it's a pretty amazing response, in fact, that Job would respond in that way. Um, If you recall what Satan asserted previously in chapter 1, that if God would take away Job's prosperity, Satan said, well, Job is no longer going to live a faithful life. God, he's going to curse you. And we saw actually the opposite. Job's prosperity is taken away. And rather than cursing God, Job is blessing him. Um, So thus far, Job is passing the test. We need to pay attention to this because this week, when we get to chapter 3, Job's response is going to take a different turn. 
the words that Job uses in chapter 3 will become very dark, um, very different from what he says here in verse 21. But before we get there, we have to look at chapter 2, where Job's suffering will increase. I'll first read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there was no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse thee to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. So what we first of all have is a similar exchange between God and Satan like we saw in chapter 1. But there are some differences here and we'll need to think about them. Um, one similarity is that, again, God takes the initiative. In verse 3 and 4, God asked the same question that he had asked in chapter 1, have you considered my servant Job? And God reminds the Satan that still, even now, Job is blameless, he's upright, he fears God, and he turns away from evil. And in some sense, the stakes are now higher because Job is now in the midst of experiencing this calamity. He's living with the loss of his livelihood, the loss of his children. And so God reminds Satan uh, that even now Job still holds fast his integrity, which is to say Job is still living a blameless life. Job has not yet sinned, has not sinned as a result of the tragedy that has taken place. But some words in verse 3, I think, raise some questions for us. You look at the end of what God says in verse 3. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now hold on to that. Because again, I think God is also kind of sovereignly taking responsibility for what has happened to Job. Um, as we saw last week, God is sovereign, Satan is not. It was God's prerogative to ruin Job as it were. We looked into this last week, that is the origin of evil and suffering, who or what brings it about. I think verse 3 now would have us not look at the origin of evil and suffering, but the cause. And what is the cause that God gives? Well, actually, he says, without cause. There was no cause. Or this could also be rendered for no reason. Are we to understand that God did this to Job for no reason? 
Does God sometimes do things for no reason? Is there an arbitrariness in God? You're right, Russ, you're saying no. But I think this verse would have us ask the question, why is God saying this? Why is God saying, using these words? Let's think about this. Was this simply to settle this wager between God and Satan? Was it to prove an object lesson for Satan, to prove that Satan was wrong in what he thought, and to show God to be in the right? If that's the case, it's almost like they're playing a game with Job. Let's ruin Job just to see what he does. And of course, Job is entirely in the dark on this wager between God and Satan. It sounds like that might be what is happening here. As I thought about this, for some reason, I thought about the toddler room down the hall. Now, many of you have raised toddlers or you've been around them, so you understand what I'm about to say. My wife and I have served in the toddler room for a long time. And have you watched the way that a two-year-old plays with blocks? She'll very carefully take the blocks, very deliberately, purposefully, stacking them up, getting them just the way she wants them. And then, for no reason, no reason that we can tell, without cause, what does she do next? She dashes them down to the ground. Is this the way that God works with us? Carefully, deliberately building up our lives just the way he wants them, only to dash them down for no reason that we can see? It's a very disturbing thought, isn't it? It's a terrible thought. Because that's not the way we want to imagine that God is. So what is God saying here? Why has he asserted that there was no cause, no reason for what has happened to Job? Well, the answer to this puzzling question is not that there was, the answer lies not in God, but in Job. We shouldn't understand that there was no cause within God I thought there was no cause within Job. There was nothing within Job's life that warranted what happened to him. Not that God didn't have a reason. Certainly, we know that everything God does is for a reason. Everything God does is for a purpose. He is always working out his purposes according to the counsel of his will. But was there anything in Job that caused this to come about? The answer to that has to be no. In order for us to explain what God is saying here, there was nothing within Job that led this to happen. There was no reason or cause within Job that led God to ruin him. But is that really much more of a more satisfying answer? Well, kind of, because it preserves God and his, the fact that he's not arbitrary. He is purposeful. He is working out his purposes. But from Job's perspective, he still is entirely in the dark. He has no idea why this is happening to him. Job could have seen no reason for this to happen to him. No cause. So just very briefly, we'll come to some 
other application later in the hour. But just briefly, I'll say this, and this will actually be developed later on in the study when the text brings us to it. But I think we have to admit the fact that sometimes in our own lives, like Job, we may experience evil and suffering for no cause that we can see. No reason that we can see. I think that's part of what Job, the book of Job, is telling us. That there are times when we will not see a reason that we're experiencing difficulty or trial. And in fact, this, this kind of thought brings us to what perhaps is the best summary of the entire message of the book of Job that I've read in my preparation for this series. And it has to do with why we experience things the way we do. And this comes from Derek Thomas, and it's basically this. That it's not important that we know or understand why we're experiencing suffering. What's important is that God knows and God understands and that we trust him. We will not always understand, but God does understand. And even if he does not reveal to us why or for what purpose, the book of Job tells us we still need to continue to trust him. And we'll see more of that as our survey progresses. And all of this, though, again, without Job knowing why this is happening, he's still passing the test. Um, and it, we could see God's words here as he's talking to Satan. This could be almost seen as God telling Satan, it's over, it's done with, it's finished. Job has passed the test. But Satan is not going to be dismissed that easily. Because Satan asserts that, well, maybe Job just hasn't been tested severely enough. Maybe the test just hasn't been hard enough. His faithfulness hasn't been pushed to the limit. And so Satan still thinks that if Job is tested further, experiences more trouble and trial, then yes, Satan still thinks that Job will curse God if he has continued to be tested. And so God agrees to this in verse 6. He says, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. So last week we noted that whatever God agreed for Satan to be able to do, he put a boundary and he said, You can't touch Job himself. And now he moves that boundary. You can touch Job, but you can't kill him. The boundary's been moved. And so the result in verse 7, Satan goes out and he smites Job with sore boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And we should understand, this is not the only, I think, physical ailment that afflicts Job. Later on in the book, in subsequent chapters, we'll see other descriptions of symptoms that Job is experiencing. But right now, the scripture describes these boils. And where does this lead Job? Well, it leads him, it says in verse 8, it leads him out to the ash heap. Which really, in this day and age, there would have been an ash heap, really a dump outside every city or village 
ashes from the city's ovens, broken pottery, refuse taken outside the city wall. This is where Job goes to the ash heap, and he finds a broken piece of pottery, and he's scraping the boils. Perhaps there's a terrible itching he's trying to relieve. Maybe it soothes the symptoms somehow. But this is where Job goes. Of course, we probably know that ashes or dust sprinkled on someone's head is a symbol of mourning, expressing grief. And so Job sits here on the ash heap, but he's not by himself. It appears that Job's wife has followed him to the ash heap. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, through the years, commentators have not been kind to Mrs. Job. And it's understandable. Augustine used these words to describe Job's wife, Diaboli adutrix. Calvin used the phrase organum satani. You don't really probably have to know any Latin to realize what they're saying, that she is the tool of Satan, or the devil's advocate. And it's sad, but it's true. She is, in fact, advocating that Job do exactly what Satan said that Job would do, curse God. And she adds something to that. Curse God and die. Just die. I suppose that somehow Mrs. Job is scandalized that in light of everything that's happened to him, how is it, Job, that you can still maintain your integrity? How can you still be living a blameless life? Look at what's happened to you. Now, it is bad advice she's giving. Terrible advice. But I have a hard time being quite so hard on Mrs. Job. Realize that I think that she has lost her livelihood, her livelihood being entirely bound up in Job's livelihood, her husband. And of course, she also has lost her ten children. And I think we might be able to presume that Mrs. Job is probably as much of a student of the doctrine of retribution as Job is, or as Job's friends will be seen to be. And so from her perspective, when she sees what has just happened to her household, perhaps the only conclusion she can draw is that the head of their household, Job, must have done something terrible to warrant this to happen. So I would imagine that she's probably humiliated. Perhaps her reputation in the community is totally diminished. What explanation could there be for what's happened to them from her perspective? So she's certainly grieving, probably in disbelief. And of course, I would hope to say that she hates to see her husband suffer. And what wife would want to see their husband suffer? And so for her, she, is, she can't be excused for telling him to curse God. But perhaps she can be excused for suggesting that he just needs to die, get this over with, let this trial be over with, wouldn't it be better, Job, if you would just no longer be experiencing this pain and this suffering? Why continue to endure such agony? 
but Job will, will not have any of it. And he gives another powerful testimony to his faithfulness in verse 10. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Another powerful testimony from Job. And then Job's friends arrive. Verses 11 through 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and with no one speaking a word to him, for what they saw that his pain was very great. Now, next time we come to our study, I think two weeks from now, because there's a baptism scheduled for next week, we'll begin to look more at these three friends and what they begin to say to Job. Um, For now, all I'm going to say is that perhaps what they do here is perhaps the best thing, the most correct thing that they do in the entire book. They sit with their friend, they don't say anything, and they empathize, they sympathize. They're on the ash heap with him, empathizing with him, with their friend, mourning with him. We'll look more at the friends next time. But now we come to chapter 3, where it's actually Job who breaks the week-long silence. We'll read the entire chapter and then say some words about it. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born, And the night which said, a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor let let light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year, Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. Neither let it see the breaking dawn, because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb, and expire? Why did the knees receive me, and why, should, and why the breast that I should suck? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then, I would have been at rest, with kings and with counselors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver. Or like a miscarriage, which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light, 
There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of their taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Who rejoice greatly, they exult when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet, and I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. So, three parts to chapter 3. We'll consider each one briefly. First of all, verses 3 through 10, Job is pronouncing a curse a curse on the day of his birth and the night of his conception. In verses 11 through 19, Job laments that he could have died at birth or been stillborn. And then verses 20 through 26, Job laments that he must continue to live at all. He desires to cease living. Now, while Job says more than this in this chapter, he's never saying less than this. He simply wants to die. And we need to have a good understanding of chapter 3 because this is the springboard for what comes next. The things that Job says and doesn't say in chapter 3, I think, largely give rise to the way his friends will begin to respond to him. So, each of these three parts. So, the curse on the day of his birth and night of his conception. Now, he's not cursing his birth itself. His actual birth, he's cursing the day on which it occurred. Or he's cursing the night on which his conception occurred. For as long as that day exists on the calendar, then Job continues living. But if that day or that night could be expunged or removed from the calendar, then Job would cease to exist. In that case, he would have never been conceived, he could have never been born if the day didn't exist. And of course, his goal here is that he wouldn't now be experiencing such suffering. Notice how the theme of darkness recurs in verses 4 through 6. He refers to darkness, a cloud, or black gloom seven times in three verses. Now, it's interesting because Job certainly couldn't have had the book of Genesis available to him but it seems as if he's making this counter-curse opposed to what God said in his first words of creation. When God said, let there be light, Job is saying regarding the day of my birth, let it be darkness. And then he seems to call upon the powers of darkness, of evil, of dark primordial chaos, to settle upon, to seize, to terrify the day of his birth and the night of his conception. Now, as disturbing as this is, we realize there's no way that Job can bring this curse about. He can't change the past. There's no way that this curse of his could be successful. And so, actually, it seems like that he knows this. And so, he ups the ante, as it were. For in verses 8 through 10, he begins to call upon ancient sorcerers 
or astrologers to curse the day of his birth. Verses 8 and 9, let those curse who do curse the day. He talks about the stars, this twilight being darkened. I think his goal, if he could, would have been to make the night of his conception unlucky so his parents couldn't have conceived. And then to add even more to the power of this spell, Job then desires that sorcerers raise this creature called Leviathan. Now we'll see Leviathan later on in the book when God finally speaks to Job. But Job might not be using this term Leviathan in the same way that God will be. But in any event, I think what we need to understand is Job is attempting to throw everything he can into this curse. His own words, the work of sorcerers, even desiring that some ancient sea monster rise up and swallow up the day of his birth. Such is the extremity of Job's feeling about his present life, which, of course, he desires to be extinguished. The second part of the chapter, I think realizing again, Job realizes I can't bring this curse about. He shifts from a curse to lamentation. He's now lamenting that since he was conceived and since he was born, he now simply wishes that he could have died at birth. And notice in several places contained within his desire for death is really, I think, a desire for rest. Look at verse 13. For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest. Look at verse 17. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. And then the last verse, verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Job is seeking the rest of death which is, of course, the common experience to all men and women. And he talks about different kinds of people, kings and counselors, masters and slaves. And it's not so much, I think, that death is the great equalizer, such that the king and the slave are equals in death. Rather, I think what Job is getting at is that in death, there is the cessation of striving and toiling. In death, no longer can the king build a palace. No longer can the prince um, fill his house with silver. No longer can the wicked rage with his evil schemes. No longer is the prisoner driven by his taskmaster and so forth. Rather, everything's at rest. There's no more conflict, no more strife, no more inner turmoil. And the last part of the chapter, the strength of his desire for rest He actually describes it in terms of digging for treasure. Where is it? Verse 21. Who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasures. One commentator has suggested that Job is playing with the idea the way that grave robbers would dig into a tomb to get treasure. Job is imagining, I would like to dig myself into the grave. The treasure I'm seeking is death itself digging his way into Sheol, as it were. But of course, he's unable to do this. He admits that death will not come. And why? Verse 23, it says that God has hedged him in. 
In chapter 1, we saw that, yes, God had placed this hedge around Job, a hedge of blessing. And now Job suggests that, well, yes, God has hedged me in, but he's hedged me in to suffer. He's locked me in to this life that I can't get out of. He's locked me in and will not allow me to escape. He has no rest, no ease, or quiet. Now, what in the world do we make of this chapter? Well, there's a number of things I think we can say. Let's first of all consider what Job has not said in this chapter. Um, And not because it's most important, because we have to start somewhere. Um, As much as Job is desiring death, it's very much worth saying that nowhere in this chapter is Job contemplating suicide. Nowhere is he suggesting that he would take his own life. Now, what else has Job not said? Well, he's made perhaps just one passing reference to God. But in general, he's not making any theological statements here. He's really not making any statements about the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. And this is different from his previous comments from chapter 1 and chapter 2, whereas Job was very clear that God was sovereignly bringing this about in his life, that the Lord had given, the Lord had taken away, that the Lord has brought good and brought adversity. But here Job is not really saying anything like that. He's not asking any ideological questions about God's justice. He's not offering any treatise on the problem of evil. We had to look at that last week and a bit in chapter 2, but those kind of thoughts are entirely absent from chapter 3. And perhaps we ask the question, why is that? Why the change? Um, well, perhaps after his initial responses in chapter 1 and chapter 2, which of course are very faithful and wonderful examples, um, but now he's been enduring his loss for a week. He's been living without his livelihood, sitting on the ash heap. His children are gone. His wife has turned against him. And so the first thing that comes out of his mouth is not a treatise on suffering or the justice of God. Rather, it is just this raw venting of his emotions. Powerful venting of this turmoil in his soul. Now, if that's what Job is doing here, Before we make any further application, I think we have to ask the question, um, is Job responding well or is Job responding badly? Should Job be saying the things that he's saying in chapter 3? Is his curse and lamentation sinful in any way? Is it instructive for us in any way? Well, let's think through that. And let's talk about feelings. Talk about emotions first. This is very raw, kind of unfiltered emotion from Job. And we should all realize at some level it's understandable, considering what the man has just endured and is still enduring. He's hurting in many ways. But of course, we realize that Job needs to be careful. You and I need to be careful when it comes to our own emotions. Because clearly, if our emotions are given full sway, it can lead us to very dark places. That's what's happening here. 
And of course, Scripture gives us warnings about this, perhaps not in specific, but I think we can apply a number of Scriptures to this. Here's one, 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Our desires, our emotions, are so easily influenced by our flesh that it can easily get us into trouble if we're not careful. We can all think of instances in our own lives when our emotions have gotten us into trouble. Think about 1 Peter 5.8. Be self-controlled and on the alert. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, Job has voiced a desire for his life to be extinguished. For a Christian to give voice to that kind of desire is on very shaky ground. We probably know that intuitively. Job will himself uh, admit some chapters later that he was impetuous in some of the things he said. Um, Thinking about emotions here, Perhaps the best way to guard ourselves is to ask ourselves the question, are our emotions in control of us or are we in control of our emotions? I think what 1 Peter 5, 8 is saying is that if you're not self-controlled, if you're letting yourself be controlled by something else, emotions fall in that category, I think, then in fact we can become easy prey for the devil. So emotions is one thing for us to keep in mind when we think through this. But I think I also have to say that I can't say for certain that Job is sinning in what he's doing here. Maybe he's a hair's breadth away. Perhaps he's very close. Because Job chapter 3 is not the only place where Scripture gives us example of a faithful servant of God experiencing turmoil and loss and expressing some very dark emotions. Um, Lamentation as a genre of prayer is found on the heart, I think, and the lips of a number of God's faithful servants. You can think about a number. Some might be David, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and I think, of course, the Lord Jesus. Let's think about a few examples here as we sort through how to approach what Job is saying. If you want to turn to these, you can. I think they're on your handout. Jeremiah chapter 20. I'll read verses 14 through 18. And this one I think is fascinating because here is where I think Jeremiah might actually be quoting from Job chapter 3. Where Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 20, 14 through 18. Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you, and made him very happy. But let that man be like cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. And let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm at noon, because he did not kill me before birth, so that my mother would not have been my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow, so that my days have been spent in shame? 
That's a dark place that Jeremiah is in. Or here's David in Psalm 69, just the first five verses. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is thou who dost know my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from thee. David's in a very dark place there. And there's other examples we could give from David. Very briefly from Habakkuk, you're familiar with this probably. Habakkuk gets this message from the Lord of what's coming. Judgment is coming, and he says in Habakkuk 3.16, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people who arise and invade us. And then think about Jesus. We know that towards the end of his life, in Matthew chapter 23, he pronounces this, uh, not pronounces, but he has this lament over Jerusalem. He laments profound emotions about the way that God's people had rejected him. And then, of course, the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26 and the other accounts, where it says that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Jesus was in a very dark place. Lamentation is actually very frequently presented to us in the Psalms. And of course, it's also worth saying that there's an entire book of the Bible called Lamentations. But thinking about the Psalms for a moment, did you know that actually a third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament? Of course, commentators might put them in different categories, but I found that perhaps 58, more or less, of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. That's more than a third of the 150. I mean, we might not know that because we probably tend to shy away from them. We're not sure what to do with them. Um, and I've lifted, listed a number on your handout. You should go and read them later today or this week. Um, because I think as we try to figure out how we should apply Job chapter 3, um, when we read a lament psalm, we read Job chapter 3 or Habakkuk or Jeremiah, we might be tempted to ask ourselves these questions. Shouldn't he be preaching truth to himself? Isn't he just complaining? Shouldn't he be taking every thought captive? I mean, I think that's the difficulty in trying to, to determine the degree to which lament is an appropriate way for the Christian to respond. But of course, I think given the number of examples we have in Scripture from faithful men, that lament as a genre of prayer and even in public worship is a perfectly valid way for the Christian to relate to his heavenly father. Derek Thomas actually suggests that the demise of psalm singing in the church is because of the psalms of lament. Because no one in public worship wants to sing a song in a slow tempo in a minor key. 
And that's what those songs would have to be. So, think about ourselves. Um, If perhaps we, without warning or for no apparent reason, find ourselves in a dark place, how do we know if our own sorrow or lamentation is within the boundaries of what is okay? Well, I would apply the rule of Romans 14, 23, where we know that if anything not done in faith is sin. So if we find ourselves, and I think sooner or later we will find ourselves in a very dark place, the way we pour out our heart to the Lord, it needs to be done in faith. It's okay to voice dark, sorrowful, profound emotions, but faith needs to break through. In fact, from the book of Lamentations, when Jeremiah is lamenting that he's been torn to pieces, he's been set as a target for an arrow, he's become a laughingstock, he's been filled with bitterness, his soul has been rejected from peace, he has forgotten happiness. Again, dark place for Jeremiah. Do you know what happens three verses later? He says this, This I recall and I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Did you know that that wonderful pronouncement comes right on the heels of Jeremiah being in a very dark place? Lamentations chapter 3. So here, I suppose, is how we should look at this, that to whatever degree we're in a dark place, faith still needs to break through. And this is actually the pattern of the lament psalms. Generally, as you read a lament psalm, you'll read some dark stuff, but then by God's grace, you'll see faith break through, and they'll give testimony to God's faithfulness, placing their hope in the Lord. Now, admittedly, There is no hope, I would say, in Job chapter 3. I don't think Job is expressing any hope here. It'll take a while until Job gets there. But eventually, even for Job, faith will break through. And he will express hope. We just have to wait for it. And do you realize that actually I think that we, you and I, are in some ways in a much better position than where David Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Job. Um, Because our lamentation can be directed to a person and to a place that Job really had only the slightest inkling of. But as we can direct our lamentation to Jesus, who himself was a man of sorrows, acquainted with suffering. And we can direct our lamentation to the cross on which Jesus died, the cross where he bore our sorrows, and carried our grief. Now it's certainly true that Job had become a believer in precisely the same way that we have, by grace, through faith in Christ. But he had only inklings of who Jesus was. He had a shadow, a promise, enough of a promise to place saving faith in Christ, of the Messiah to come. But we don't have a shadow We have the substance. We not only have the promise, we have the fulfillment of a Savior who not only has carried our griefs and our sorrows, but he cares for us and has given us his spirit. We know much more about Jesus than Job would have known. 
So Job would have never known these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Job would have never known those words. He knew enough about who Jesus was. But Job would have not known that. He would have never heard these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Job knew something about the resurrection. We'll actually see that later on in the book. But he didn't know everything that we know. Much less any of the encouraging or hopeful words from Peter or Paul or John, James. Still we realize that sorrow is still profound and pain is still painful. But in whatever anguish or turmoil we have, we look to Jesus, where we find God's promises fulfilled for us of rest, hope, and peace. And one more thing that Job has not done. You may have noticed, you may have not. In chapter 3, Job does not admit any wrongdoing. He does not repent of anything. He does not suggest that he sinned. He doesn't say that he has done anything to bring this affliction upon himself. And this is important because Job's three friends will latch on to this and they won't let go for the next 22 chapters. And that's our subject the next time we come together. Let's pray. Lord, you are um, praiseworthy um, as you're sovereignly moving in our lives. Lord, we, we praise you that you do have a purpose in everything. But Lord, um, help us uh, to be humble when we don't know what those purposes are. Lord, strengthen our faith when we are in the dark. Lord, help us to look to Jesus to find faith even in the darkest of times. We pray this in his name. Amen.